0: The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There is no growth in comfort,
1: and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way.
2: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. This is Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to talk about an interesting component of resilience. Now, I know there's been a lot in the literature and in the popular press about being resilient as an individual. But we want to take a slightly different angle on this one and talk a bit about um, how it is you create an organization that's resilience. So let's start with this. resilience is the ability to face adversity and to bounce back from setbacks. And some people we know show enormous resilience in the face of adversity like first responders or Navy SEALs or people who survived the Boston Marathon or even some of the top performing athletes who have to come back from setback after setback. So one, what distinguishes those people? And then two, what is it that leaders do to build organizations that are resilient? And then the last part, we're gonna look a little bit at neuroscience that helps us understand this whole process. Now, with me today is George Everly. George is a faculty member at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and at the John Hopkins School of Medicine. George started his publishing career and training career, I guess you should say, really in the biomedical science area, looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. And eventually that led to some leadership training where he was fundamentally asking the question of what is it that extraordinary leaders do that keep people loyal and following them, even when there's a bunch of failure, and then more importantly, how do we instill this resilience in organizations? So, George, welcome to the show.
3: Well, thank you very much, Wanda. All
2: right, so I want to start first with this focus on individuals who are resilient. You studied, I know you studied organizations for a while, but recently you have studied resilient people like first responders and Navy SEALs and Lance Armstrong and the survivors of the Boston Marathon. Tell us about one of those people and what you've learned in looking at their lives.
3: I started out looking at, as you point out, organizations. But organizations are made up of people, so there's no such thing as a resilient organization without resilient people. So I wanted to look at what that fabric was uh, at the individual level. Uh, and what we did is we interviewed a number of highly resilient people, and you mentioned Navy SEALs and professional athletes. We also interviewed people who had uh, potentially catastrophic medical injuries or illnesses. And what we found was something that, quite frankly, shocked me. The same factors that predicted resilience in the Navy SEALs and uh, some of the elite law enforcement and first responders were the same factors that seemed to predict uh, resilience amongst civilians, people we've never heard of but are heroes in their own way, people that that, uh, recovered from medical injuries or people that had illustrious careers and then all of a sudden those careers were over. How do they bounce back? And we've, uh, much to our surprise, the factors seem to be much the same. Um, and whether it was the survivor, the young lady who was standing three feet away from the Boston Marathon first detonation, or whether it was an athlete who pretty much had defined his life by his athletic prowess and then. Uh, relatively young in life, that career is over. How do you redefine yourself? How do you see the end of one life leading to the beginning of another? And that's kind of what that was our our tact. One of the things that we found across the board was the support of other individuals seemed to be a catalyst. It seemed to be a factor that every single person had, uh, whether it was a formal network to rely upon or whether it was an informal. Uh, We have studies of uh, one particular Navy SEAL uh, who did some very heroic things uh, in the Vietnam War. Uh, They were not disclosed until decades later because of the nature of the missions he was on. But when the mission was over, he was brought back to the United States to be an SEAL instructor. Well, he was very interested in triathlons and was training for one on a bicycle one day. He was in the fog, and he did not see another bicyclist coming, and they collided head-on. At that point, he became a paraplegic. Now, how do you go from being a Navy SEAL, uh, in, in, in the vernacular, master of all you see, to now, in a heartbeat, becoming a paraplegic, and what did his life look like after that? And what we saw, the commonalities between him and the young lady that was standing close to the first detonation at the Boston Marathon, was they had support systems. They had someone to have their back. Someone was looking after them when they couldn't look after themselves. And I think that does a couple of things. It not only covers the bases that you can't cover yourself, but it also says a more important thing, and that is you are worth our attention. You are worth spending our time and energy on. And what you do and what you did matters. So that was one of the one of the important things that we discovered.
2: So if I translate that into an average person's life, not many of us are Navy SEALs or are gonna survive, I hope, a bombing that would mean that building the kind of support people around me and in times of stress, I am turning to that support system and letting that support system care for me in some way. Is that a right statement? I
3: think that's a very nice summary. And I think that the only thing I would add is formulating that network needs to happen before you need people. Um, it's, It's a lot easier that way. And sometimes we don't even have the capacity to reach out to others when yeah. we're in our darkest moments. So if we've already constructed a support network, uh, that network is also a monitoring or surveillance system for everyone in it. And that network becomes a living, breathing thing. In real estate, they say it's location, location, location. In resilience, it's whom you know, whom you know, whom you know.
2: Yeah. Okay. I love that one, whom you know, whom you know. Now, is there any, are there any qualities about the support system that make it stronger or weaker? I think so.
3: Um, I, I think what I say to people is reach out to people who have a caring and compassionate presence, a good heart, someone who is willing to put themselves second in someone else's moment of need. Unfortunately, you've probably heard the term frenemies. There are some people who reach out to be helpers uh, as a means of making themselves feel better. Uh, Those are not the kinds of people that you really want to surround yourself with.
2: Got it. So there's a bit of people that I genuinely trust and I genuinely believe, have my back, care for me. Those sorts of qualities are going to make a big difference in the network. Okay, so one of the factors is that I have a supportive people around me who are really going to look after me when I can't necessarily look after myself and do that from a place of genuineness. What's the second factor that distinguishes these people who survive or who have resilience?
3: They're remarkably optimistic the problem is we all think we are (laughs) how many people are saying no i'm really a pessimist most people endorse the notion that they're optimists, but our research discovered that very few people really were if we had to apply a number to it we'd say somewhere in the order of 70 to 75 percent of people say they're optimistic they're really not so what distinguishes the minority from that other majority it's what we call uh active optimism. So they are not only hoping and believing things will turn out well, they are making a plan, a plan of action, so that it does turn out well. Uh, They tend to, to borrow a term from the 1970s, they tend to have an internal locus of control. This is something that was revealed by studies, Emily Werner, in uh, the 1970s and studies of resilient children on the island of Kauai mm-hmm. uh, and we see the same thing going through children, teenagers, adults, uh, older adults the same idea uh, not only do you have to hope you have to develop a plan if you there's a saying if you don't know where you're going chances are you'll end up someplace else <laughs>
2: Love that one. Absolutely true. Okay, so incredibly optimistic. It's not just that they say it; they actually believe it, they expect it, and they develop a plan of action that moves them in the right direction.
3: Right, and and you said something important there. Expected because there's a literature on something called the self fulfilling prophecy, and it's something social psychologists identified many many years ago. But uh, we, we I, I guess those of us in the harder sciences would be uh, initially dismissive of such things until we understood that there's a neurology associated with a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, the self-fulfilling prophecy is if you expect something to happen, chances are the probability is increased of that happening. Now, that's not going to work if I stand up on my roof and say I'm going to fly. I can't overcome the laws of physics. But... Uh, In certain things where there is planning, where there is uh, outcome is associated with effort, tenacity, the self-fulfilling prophecy becomes a very powerful thing. But it also can regulate your nervous system. And the regulation of the nervous system controls how the body follows through on the plans. How vulnerable are you to stress or depression is actually to some degree modulated by your expectations.
2: Okay, so this fits in line with some of the research that said it's not so much the stress that's the problem, it's your expectations about the value of the stress.
3: Yeah, pretty much. Um, the, the notion born of the 1960s and 70s was it's not so much what happens to you that matters, it's how you take it. Okay. And we know that there is no such thing as perceptual reality without that filtering perceptual mechanism. Mm-hmm. So everyone arms themselves, as Daniel Kahneman, Nobel laureate pointed out, with cognitive biases. And that changes how I view the world, how I view my threats, and how I view my expectations
2: of success in face of a threat. Yep. Okay. All right, so the self-fulfilling part come back to the beginning part of this. The self-fulfilling prophecy actually has a neurological base so that when I am planning, I'm putting in an effort, I have some tenacity, it actually affects the nervous systems and how vulnerable we are to stress. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So we have two factors that distinguish now these extraordinary people or people, even ordinary people who survive extraordinary circumstances. One is they have an incredibly supportive network of people who are willing to put themselves put themselves second and the person in need first. And second, they are truly actively optimistic, not just say so, meaning they create a plan and they try to make it happen. Correct. What's the third factor?
3: Um, The third factor is you must be able to be decisive. So having a network around you is great. Being optimistic and having a plan is great. But there are many people that I've studied who have a plan, but they can't initiate it. They can't overcome inertia. There are some very, very smart people who I've studied who were virtually paralyzed. I call it paralysis by analysis they waited and waited and waited for all the information they waited for that moment of absolute certainty and it okay. never came and right. what also was lost was the opportunity itself so you know when i when we talk about organizations one of the most toxic leaders or managers there is is the manager who can't make a decision yeah. you know employees will say look we don't care what you do just do something You're a leader, lead. And there there are those who are so fearful of failure that they're unable to to actually act.
2: Okay. So this ability to be decisive, to take an action, to move, to do something against the plan, even if it's not 100% clear what the outcome is going to be, it's just the movement, the getting over the inertia is a really big factor here.
3: It really is. And those of us with uh, attention deficit disorder have an even bigger problem with that.
2: (laughs) There's a lot of us with a disorder, I think, and I think the world is increasing it by the day. All right. So I have a supportive network. I have a genuine active optimism. I have an ability to make a decision and act. What's the fourth factor?
3: Right. Fourth factor This, I I, I shouldn't say this surprised me, but I must say it did. Some sense of moral compass, some sense of right and wrong, uh, characterized truly resilient people. And that was a very pleasant finding, I must say. Uh, You have to have some sense of right and wrong, have to have some definition, albeit idiosyncratic, of honesty, and you have to, as we extended this discussion, we realize that truly resilient people were t- tended not to be selfish in this regard, but seemed to understand that they were part of something greater than themselves, which circles back to this notion of interpersonal support. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. I want to ask a question here. So I love the notion of the moral compass. And of course, I love the notion that people have a sense of right and wrong. But I also happen to believe, particularly the corporate world, is a lot of shades of gray and not a lot of clear black and white. I mean, clearly if I'm producing a product that's going to cause people's death or physical harm, there's a black and white in that. But most of the decisions are really shades of gray. And one of the things that we find that people do well in organizations is this ability to not get stuck in only one way. So how do you reconcile what I just said with this notion of moral compass? How is the moral compass different than that?
3: Well, the, the moral compass um, is a starting place. I think one of the things that we've observed, though, with, uh, with uh, especially resilient leaders is that they also have the ability to be flexible. As yep. the culture changes, as the demands change, uh, people are able to adapt. So resilient leaders and resilient people, frankly, are able to adapt to situations. Mm-hmm. But God forbid the person that has a paralyzing illness who defines their world as the ability to ambulate without assistance and get stuck there has a very poor prognosis, frankly, not just for quality of life but life itself versus the person says okay uh i don't like the change the rules have changed the game isn't fair i don't like it but you know what tomorrow is the next day of the rest of my life and that i do control okay. so some some flexibility is important
2: Okay. All right. So a sense of a moral compass, meaning there is something greater than myself, which is probably reinforced by having the right kind of network around you. I belong to a greater purpose, a greater mission, I guess, is a way of saying that. Um, But with that, some ability to be flexible, to recognize that things aren't always fair, and I'm going to take control of what I can take control of. Exactly. Okay. Supportive network. Truly optimistic actions, an ability to decide, a moral compass, and what's the fifth factor? Well, just tenacity.
3: (laughs) Single best predictor of success in almost any endeavor I've studied, short of theoretical physics and mathematics and and, world-class music. But even then, in music and chess, you still have to practice Um, tenacity. Uh, We see that people that have the cognitive ability to see failure as a stepping stone to success, those are the ones that tend to succeed versus those who see failure as the self-fulfilling prophecy, as the realization of their expectation. How many times have, have, have we, for example, said, well, I'm going to try this, whatever this is, but I probably won't do it very well. And then guess what? You don't do it very well. However, if you say, I got this, and at first you don't succeed, as the old teaching manual in the 1800s used to say, try, try again, mm-hmm. and those are the people that succeed more times than not. And, and when you're talking about competition, which whether it's on the individual level, the athletic level, the a- academic level, or at the corporate level, it's often the last person standing That wins the game, not necessarily the most talented. Tenacity is priceless. And of course, those lines from Calvin Coolidge, you know, perseverance is omnipotent, he said.
2: Okay. I love that one. Um, I have been telling people, you know, people have a tendency to say when you're working with them, coaching them, and if they want to try a new behavior, they'll say, I'll try that. And I have adopted recently Yoda's from um, Star Wars saying, There is do or do not. No try. (laughs) It's the same thing. I love it. It's this notion of tenacity. Okay, so five factors that these individuals that distinguish these people, and I want to come back to where you started the story. When you look at a Navy SEAL who has survived phenomenal heroic feats and then is a paraplegic from a bicycle accident, An individual standing beside the Boston Marathon or running in the Boston Marathon, an athlete like Lance Armstrong, who suddenly at a very young age is out of the thing that has created his identity for the last how many ever years and now is remaking himself. We could also say from any number of business leaders who, for whatever reasons, find them out of the thing that they were doing and have to, again, remake. So some extraordinary circumstances. Five things capture all of those people. One is having a supportive network of other people who will look after you sometimes when you can't look after yourself and even reach out to you without your having to ask. That network, as you rightly point out, is created before you need it. There's the optimism, the expecting it, believing it, hoping for it, and developing a plan of action so that it turns out well. There's the ability to make a decision. Particularly when you don't have all the information, there's uncertainty and not just waiting for everything, just to get over the inertia and move. There's fourth, the moral compass, a sense of things that are greater than yourself, a sense of honesty, a sense of right and wrong as a starting place. Of course, with some flexibility. And then fifth is the tenacity. What you say is the single biggest predictor of success in almost every area to see failure as a stepping stone. Okay, let me pause to just say with me today is George Everly. George is a John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health faculty member and also at the School of Medicine at John Hopkins. If you are interested in books, there are a number of books, Resilient Leader, Resilient Child, but the one that I find most interesting is Stronger, Develop the Resilience You Need to Succeed, and um, that's the one that's focusing on first responders that we have just been talking about. So, George, I want to go on to talk now, not about individuals, but to talk about resilient organizations. And you have a story that got you started thinking about this, about Robert E. Lee. So would you just tell us about that story?
3: Sure. So I was asked by uh, a a government that I actually do consultation with to develop uh, a leadership training program. And I'd gotten my first two degrees in business and I'd leadership was kind of my focus, but I had uh, taken a rather severe left turn in my career focus and went into the neurosciences after that, so I was a little surprised that they would ask me to to do a a leadership program, and I said, well, we've got to create something uh, different because generally you go to business school to learn leadership or you go to military academies to learn leadership. But we're going to take a slightly different tack, because this particular government was anticipating some some challenges ahead. So, again, the concept of resilience came into mind. And we had done some work in the Middle East, especially in the country of Kuwait, building what we thought was the world's first mental health center built around resilience. And so I was trying to blend resilience and uh, leadership together. And I was intrigued with the American Civil War, which uh, has so many wonderful examples of of leadership. And Robert E. Lee, uh, although he was on the wrong side of history, shall we say, uh, was the most revered general uh, in America at that time. He was offered the command of the Army uh, of the Potomac by. Uh, Lincoln, he turned it down, ultimately got command of the Confederate Army, the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, he was he was an amazing leader. He had fewer resources, f- fewer trained soldiers, uh, smaller armies, and yet, uh, up until the Battle of Gettysburg, his armies were undefeated, and it was a point of great concern to, to Lincoln, obviously. It appeared that Lee was not happy with the war and wanted to have it ended as rapidly as possible. So he decided to go into Maryland and show the North that they were vulnerable. Uh, The Battle of Antietam uh, was not particularly successful. He went back, took his troops up into the state of Pennsylvania where he met uh, ultimately the Union forces at at the town of Gettysburg. The first two days of the Battle of Gettysburg were pretty much uh, a draw, uh, which was technically a victory for Lee. His army was about two-thirds the size of the Union army. They were fighting on Union turf. uh, And he was saying that, hey, we're a player. You're vulnerable. Maybe we should consider some sort of armistice. Uh, However, he wanted a decisive victory against the advice, and this is important, against the advice of all of his generals especially as closest General General Longstreet. Well, it seemed that the, the uh, Confederate Army had to go up a hill to capture the Union encampment on a ridge, ironically called Cemetery Ridge. All of his generals said, this is a suicidal attack. We're going uphill. There are barriers. There are fences. There's a road. This is going to be a slaughter. And he said, I have great faith in our soldiers. He ordered the attack nonetheless uh, against his general's uh, admonitions. And it was a slaughter, frankly. As the Confederate soldiers were retreating, they, everyone on the battlefield knew it was suicidal. Even the Union forces, delayed opening fire because they were so awed by what they were seeing. But ultimately, it was a very bad day for the Confederacy. As the retreating Confederate soldiers went past Lee, they saluted. They took their hats off. They cheered. The report by a British light colonel who was writing this, and it was a report was published in 1865, I read the original manuscript. He said he was stunned by the fact that even the severely wounded, potentially the dying, were cheering generally. I said to myself, what the heck? What is going on? What did this man have after, arguably, a mistake that would later cost the war? Why was he being cheered? And that turned my whole focus on this whole notion of... of, leadership from a resilience perspective, and actually building a culture of resilience within the organization. And I think Lee was capable of doing that and did do that. So I really reexamined, infused the notion of resilience and came up with this notion of organizational cultures of resilience, which I viewed as environments where adaptability and resilience are not only fostered, but they're the fabric of the entity itself. Okay. And I think it characterizes all the things we've been talking about, special forces, elite law enforcement, elite sports teams. Remember the time when when Dallas was America's football team, New York Yankees were the America's baseball team, and Santos of Brazil was America's soccer team.
2: Okay. I remember, absolutely remember some of those days so, what is it, then, that happens in these organizations? And is it the organization, or is it something that the leader does that creates this kind of resilient culture?
3: It's, well, let's go back to, the, to to Douglas McGregor's notion. You'll remember you know, mm-hmm. the human side of enterprise. Mm-hmm. Every organization is an organization that consists of people, as I started in my opening remarks. Right. Um, so either the either there's a bottom up or a top down initiative. Something cultivates this culture. In my experience, it's often the top down. But if you remember Gladwell's book on the tipping point, he made a very cogent argument that that top-down changes uh, don't have to occur. In fact, sometimes it's a few key people in a society, a community, and an organization that can change the entire organization, the entire culture, that tipping point idea. Right. So, that, so what I have chosen to do is, depending on the organization I'm working with, is brief the CEO's, the policy makers get their endorsement, which is essential, but to actually change the frontline managers. So, in a hospital, for example, you want to change a hospital culture, something I'm very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you say, well, we've got to change the, the decision makers, we have to change the physicians. Uh, not so much. Uh, there's an old saying the physician saves your life, the nurse keeps you alive. That is true in the hospital culture itself. So when we go into a hospital, we change. We help nurse managers become uh, resilient leaders because they interface. They have the direct contact with the largest group of people in the military, for example, it would be first sergeants for uh, that, that you know basically frontline managers and whatever your organization is you have frontline managers those are the people that we would we would address and it seems to be efficient far more cost effective we can we can make these types of changes for 20 to 30% of the normal cost of going in doing a major overhaul oh, oh yeah it's it's it's, it's amazing um, so it's a complicated a long-winded response to your question. It's I got not it. a, I got it's it. not an either or unfortunately.
2: Okay. All right, so it's a culture. I get your point and it does need and I totally agree with you my experience. It certainly needs the sanction, the the blessing of the top of an organization otherwise they can kill the effort. But that the real change in creating a resilient culture or altering a culture or making a change for that matter is getting down to the front line, the people who are in the day-to-day, as some folks say, the coalface of the organization. So what has to happen or what are the factors that create these resilient organizations? If
3: I can back up just for a minute, though, because a lot of decision makers – I just came back from South America and and we're talking to a lot of CEOs – Multi-multi-million-dollar multinational corporations, and part of the part of the question was: uh, This sounds like a feel-good move, Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, what's it going to do to my bottom line? Which is a very fair question. So we've done some research, and we've analyzed research of others. And let me share some numbers with you, and I don't want to get caught in numbers, but they're pretty powerful. They're pretty powerful. So research my colleague, uh, Dr. Ken Smith, and I've been doing for, oh gosh, 30 years now, showed that uh, when we instituted these resilient notions, that the potential was to increase job performance up to 130%, which I think is astounding. A 48% decrease in job turnover and tension. Uh, many industries suffer greatly because they lose right. key people. And estimates vary, but they'll say anywhere from it's priceless, you can't put a price on it, to 10 times the person's salary. Mm-hmm. We saw a 10% decrease in burnout, which, again, I think is important. And I would say to people, how many times have you seen people show up to work but they're not really there? Yeah. And and that's when they make mis- mistakes, bad decisions, et cetera. There was a, there's a series of studies um, that indicated uh, that resilient cultures that have trust had seventy four percent less stress, one hundred six percent more energy, thirteen percent fewer sick days, seventy six percent more inter interpersonal connectedness, and when you ask people just how's life, there was about a 29% increase in life satisfaction, and the bottom line to all this, when I would say to these CEOs, is it means sustainability, and if you have a family-owned business, you should be paying attention, because you know the statistics as well as I do. Seventy percent of family-owned businesses fail in their second generation. Ninety percent fail in their third.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. 90% in their third. Okay. I think I'm back now. Okay. All right. (laughs) Now, what was your question? (laughs) Sorry, I had a little uh, blip in the technology here. That's incredible. 70% of family-owned businesses fail in the second generation and 90% fail in the third generation. So getting this resilience into the organization has a lot of positive benefit in this area. I mean, if you just call it engagement, and we know the power of having engagement and sustainability, then so much the better. So tell us what it is we need to do. What are the factors that contribute to making a resilient organization?
3: You need leadership all through the organization that takes responsibility. Okay. How many times have you worked for someone, maybe not you personally, but just to your, to your audience, how many times have you worked for someone who seemed to be almost Teflon? They, they could not take responsibility for anything that went wrong, even though they were clearly responsible. Well, that starts to erode. So taking responsibility, certainly for the bad, uh, and sharing the good. Quick story about Abraham Lincoln, consistently voted the, the greatest leader in American history. So he says, after the Battle of Gettysburg, he sends a note to McClellan, General McClellan, Union General, and says, I am heartened to learn of the defeat of the Confederacy at Gettysburg, it is imperative that you follow his army and neutralize them. And he said, do so immediately. If you follow the army and you defeat General Lee, destroy this directive and take the credit for yourself. However, if it turns out badly, keep this memo and I will shoulder the blame. I love that. Take a deep breath. Can you tell me how many leaders in modern history have said something similar? Yeah, right. I'm a a, a bit at a loss. Okay. So taking responsibility is important. Secondly, communication. You must be a good communicator. And just just happened to be that Lincoln was an amazing communicator. Bill Clinton, amazing communicator. Ronald Reagan, amazing communicator. Even though they're kind of opposite ends of the political spectrum, the right. communication is really, really essential. Uh, decisiveness again—the ability to make a decision—is uh, imperative. We see some of the same characteristics of the individuals having a moral compass of sorts. And 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 what's really important is having that sense of optimism, a future vision, is really important. So we did a study, and we analyzed leadership from the perspective of um, uh, United States presidents. Mm -hmm. And C-SPAN, in the year 2000 and in the year 2009, did studies where they asked 60 to 65 experts in leadership leadership, and 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 history to evaluate all american presidents at the time and they had various factors that they would rate these presidents on and they would end up getting kind of a numeric score and it would be a composite and this is where lincoln is consistently rated tops uh, george washington second and fdr franklin delano roosevelt third um I the, the data is readily available online, so I got the data and I reanalyzed it. And the mistake that people would make would be just to take uh, arithmetic averages. And I said, but what you're doing is you're dumbing down the top leaders with the bad leaders. So we did a consistency analysis, and we only analyzed the presidents that were consistently ranked in the top. And we found something very interesting. We found what I will now borrow from a uh, Academy Award-winning movie. It was called The Gladiator. And okay. in the movie, the General Maximus uh, had a catchphrase they used that pretty much guided him throughout the movie, his life, his career, etc. And there were two two words, well, three words. Strength and honor. Strength and honor. Okay. And, and that's in the final analysis, that's what all of these top five, six, seven, eight presidents had. And that's what resilient leaders have, strength and honor. And, and you know, it boils down to that. It's, it's pretty much that simple.
2: Well, so if I take, so we come back to the leaders themselves their willingness to take responsibility for the bad and share the good. I often say they take the blame and they give the credit. There you go. Their ability to communicate, though we can come back and explain what communicate means, but you can say they connect with the audience, they're compelling in their communication, they kind of win people over hearts and minds. A lot to be said about how you do that, okay? Okay. Three, they're decisive, they can make a decision, not too, I would argue, not too fast, but not too slowly either. So they're willing to gather some data, get some input, but at the same time, make a decision. There's a sense of a moral compass, and there's a sense of optimism that's really driven by a future vision where we're going. Right, right.
3: So I think what this does, because when I was teaching this class um, at the FBI Academy, actually, one of the things they would ask is, well, what's, what's the difference between traditional leadership and resilient leadership? Mm-hmm. It's a fair question. And my answer is, you know, the goal of traditional leadership, frankly, is to engender followership. You've you got to have compliance. You've got to have people, you know, following the mission. With resilient leadership, that is part of it. But the most important part is the goal is to create a culture of resilience where the people are resilient, which makes the fabric of the organization resilient, which makes the organization itself resilient. Followership will then fall fall in line. It's a natural outflow of this, and we can look at organizations that seem to have it and seem to don't have it, not have it. Uh, and you, you, you look at the, the textbook cases of corporate crises. I mean, there are you know, hundreds, but you take a look at. DP and how they handle the oil spill. Or you take a look at Samsung and how they handle the Galaxy. Or you take a look at J&J and how they handle Tylenol. Or you take a look at Toyota and how they handle... And what I then do is I, I analyze stock prices. Okay. And I, I, you know, anybody that's followed the stock market knows the stock market has very little to do with finance. It has everything to do with faith and credibility of an organization. So it's one of your best psychological indicia. Uh, In terms of how how is this organization constructed and how is it running? So if you look at those things, and then you study study some of those examples that I gave you, uh, the the whole notion uh, comes back to those who acted with strength and honor. Strength being optimism and decisiveness and taking responsibility, and honor. In some sense of a moral compass and open communications those organizations tended to do better according to their stock prices this isn't okay. you know and, and that to me that's like a big deal i mean it, we're no longer talking about social psychological factors that are hard to measure and then you ask a hardcore ceo so what if i can convert that now to a stock price people are going to listen
2: okay I love to so see you break down strength and honor. So strength is take responsibility, bad shared, good communicate effectively and be decisive. And honor is that sense of moral compass and the optimism.
3: Actually, so, it's a little different. A little,
2: a little <laughs> different. different. Sorry, okay, I was, say it again. I was, That's I was, all right. Say it again.
3: I was speaking too quickly. I apologize. I get excited about this. Uh, this is,
2: okay. to me, this
3: is fun. So uh, strength is really the... the Active optimism, the sense of control, the self utilizing the self fulfilling prophecy. Uh-huh. It's being able to make a bold decision and take responsibility for it and be tenacious. All of that is strength. Okay. Honor is the integrity, the ethical behavior, the sense of a moral compass, and open, honest, rapid communications. You know, there is no such thing as an information vacuum. I've worked with leaders who are really good people. They don't intend to deceive. And I will say, why did you delay making a statement? Well, I want to make sure I got it all right. And I said, my friend, in the age of social media, you do not have that luxury. If you are not speaking, someone else is speaking for you on social media, but it's out of your hands and it's usually the most upset employee you have. No such thing as an information vacuum.
2: Okay. It's fabulous, George. Unfortunately, I have a feeling we could go on for an hour because I can tell you get excited about this, and we should all get excited about it because the kind of things that you're talking about are exactly what lead to sustainable organizations, um, higher productivity, and better profitability as measured by the stock market. So it's stuff worth paying attention to. So just to repeat, with me today is George Everly. George has written a bunch of books, but the one I highly recommend at the moment is Stronger. There are several others. You can contact him on his email address, which is G. Everly, and I don't have the last details. George, what is that again? <laughs> it's
3: G. Everly. It's G-E-V-E-R-L-Y, the number one, at jhu.edu. J-H-U is in Johns Hopkins University, dot E-D-U as in Education.
2: All right. Fabulous. I think the highlight for me of today is to just think going back to what it is that makes for resilient individuals and recognize that some of that same thing is what we do as leadership. So just to repeat the ones about the organization, taking responsibility for the bad and share the good, communicate really effectively, be decisive, make a decision, don't wait for all the information, a sense of moral compass, and a sense of optimism, optimism, especially of the future vision. George? Thank you for joining us and join us next week to talk with Jim Tam about radical collaboration.
1: Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.